Welcome to episode 5 of It's a Baseball Podcast. I'm your co-host Sam Hale. Appreciate everybody stopping by. Hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode with Sabre-nominated writer Michael Aheto. This week it's a little bit more of a traditional podcast. We're going back to the well. We're really kind of going back to our old stomping grounds. If you enjoy the more Mike and John conversation podcast, this is very much going to be an episode for you. Uh, We talk a lot about baseball in this one, so we're living up to our name. But specifically the back half of the show is a lot about Mike and John reminiscing about their first games in baseball, what exposed them to the game and that sort of thing. And they go back and forth in a conversation that's quite enjoyable, really. So if that's sort of your thing, this is going to be a very good episode for you. So let's get right to it. Episode five, it's a baseball podcast coming at you right now. This is why, you know, what's going on with baseball and, you know, everything, especially when, you know, MLB talks about the minor leagues, it's kind of aggravating where it's like, yeah, like product, like people who are healthy and, and happy and like feel that they have a work life balance perform better. And, and that's again, that's not what it should, should be all about. I, I'm not, you know, suggesting that, but I am saying like from that corporate capitalist standpoint, like that's the thing that's maddening. And like that's the other side of it. Like I think some corporations, you know, we know MLB feels this way, the way they look at it. Like I've seen well meaning people tweet or say, like, well, why, why don't they care? Like I don't get it. And it's like, well, it's because they see minor leaguers as disposable. And if, if they don't work out, they'll find more minor leaguers. You know, that that's that's it. The system yeah. doesn't condition them to care. Like it doesn't they don't have to. And they're probably right. Like, I mean, they will find more minor leaguers, but like at some point you are like you are giving up quality. Like you are, you know, losing out a little bit. But yes, as long as from their perspective, if they if they're making money, they're like, well, whatever and that's sort of the problem with baseball right like right now is that everything and i think this is where i'm starting to tune out tune it out and get a little i'm not despairing that they're not going to come back i'm despairing well i am despairing that but i'm despairing more that they're not going to address these core issues which is well teams feel many teams feel they don't have to put a competitive product on the field mm-hmm. and like that's not get no matter what happens with the money that's not going to get addressed or not going to address very well yeah. And it's just going to leave that problem like, okay, well, 10 teams aren't trying or whatever it sucks. Like, it just isn't really that interesting to watch. So that's that's why I'm large-scale pessimistic, but small-scale, I don't want to say optimistic, but I, you know, that's why I, I have some expectation that we're not going to miss that, miss that much baseball because I feel like the... The players' association has kind of already given up the store. Like, the, the terms on which they're disagreeing... You know, it's 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 just yeah. like move your slider in whatever direction for the right. for the the you know competitive balance tax or the you know the the bonus pool. But they've they've isolated the issues. Like they're conceptually, they're not any like huge disagreements where there's no yeah. common ground. And and so I feel like well, the players have already lost. So now it's just a matter sure. of time before they find the number in the middle. And I think that's. Yeah there's a good chance that could happen actually, you know, pr- fairly soon. They're, they're but trying in the to big build picture. In, yeah. They're trying it, to build in sucks. some, yeah, they're trying to build in some security for the younger players and, you know, for, for, and yes, depending on where the needle lands, it will help some players. And I'm not, I'm not discounting that. Like that's, that's good. Sure. It won't do nearly enough, but it's, it's good. It's, it's, you know, any improvement over what we currently have is, is great. But yes, I think what's really unfortunate is that, the the way the owners have rigged the system and figured out how to rig it means that you know unless 
a bunch of Steve Cohen's without his, you know, awful hedge fund background show up and are just like, screw it. We want to spend money. It doesn't, it isn't going to matter. And and like in reality, that's kind of what we're stuck with is that it's, the system is set up for owners not to spend money and they kind of figure that out and they figured out how to, you know, depending on what numbers you look at, get what, like right now, I think it's like 60 to 65% of the revenue compared to the rest that go into the players. And mm-hmm. that's just going to keep tilting more and more. And it's, it's not so much that I care about how the revenue tilts, it, it, although I do, it's more that I care about the way that impacts the game. And again, when you have teams putting out essentially what's kind of sort of a triple a roster, it's not really interesting to watch. And also it, it is the, well, why should I pay for this? Like why I, I'd rather go to a minor league game and watch like fun prospects than, you know, go to a major league game and pay that money and, you know, deal with the parking, deal with the traffic and all the bullshit and, you know, feel like, okay, I'm watching the, you know, Yankees face like, you know, the Orioles who really aren't bothering to put a team out there because they never going to make money. Yep. And I think the problem too is like Ryan Mountcastle. God bless him, and I like Ryan Mountcastle. He's fun. It's not really like like watching. It's just a different sport. So it's not like watching like a Joel Embiid, for example, when he was first coming up, and the Sixers sucked. But you're like, you could see the glimmer. Like, damn, like this this dude is going to be great. And like, I I feel like I'm in on the ground floor, and this is like hella fun to watch. Like Ryan Mountcastle doesn't deliver that that juice and yeah but i mean it's hard maybe maybe grayson rodriguez will when when he comes up but like i mean still a starting pitcher who pitches every fifth day at best is not right it's it's apples and oranges to basketball because one player can make such a difference true i mean you can see him beat even as a rookie on the court for you know 30 while he was hurt a lot or he wasn't playing a lot but when he did play you could see him right for 25 30 minutes and be like yeah i and you know even rob manfred who you know we justifiably keep dragging through the mud he made that point i think on an interview on one of the net you know one of the games where he made he's talking about mike trout he's like hey look like Mike Trout's awesome, and I know people love to see him, but part of the problem is you could theoretically like see Mike Trout once an hour if he doesn't make a play in the field. So you could see him bat, like do his thing, you know, get on base, you know, or if he get, makes an out, like make an out, and then that's it. You don't see Mike Trout for an hour, and you're kind of like, okay, well, that was fun. You know, we yeah. were talking about the uh, kind of like the players you're losing just in general because of the system. Like it's not even really – I mean, I guess you, if you want to blame them in some way, which feels really dirty considering that they're going against, you know, it's just such a mega force of corruption and and, and, and capitalism that it just feels wrong. But, you know, one of the things that is a loss on the players and the owner's side, though I would contend it's more the owners, is that when they're in these negotiations, obviously the owners are trying to, to make as much money as possible. And the players are trying to take away as much money as possible from the owners and put it in their own pockets for themselves in the future. But the, the biggest thing about baseball's like issues, if we want to call them that it is not even so much the on field product. Like you mentioned, like it's everything around it. It's like, Hey, it costs so much to park. It costs so much for tickets. It costs so much for a hot dog, a beer, a t-shirt, a Jersey. Like, you know, in my case, like it, it, in this particular market right now, unless you have certain television providers, you can't even watch the games on TV. So you've either got to have, the certain correct provider or you've got to have like you know tv and a vpn or however it gets done but i think this is the greatest flaw in the current negotiation structure it's not that like the owners are just evil even though they are 
or that the players are at a distinct disadvantage that they are. It's that neither is looking at the economic issues that affect the fans because that's ultimately where this is going to end up. Like we're going to see dwindling crowds and things like that as long as the ever present like just infrastructure issues exist. Like you said, who's going to go see Ryan Mountcastle? With all due respect to Ryan Mountcastle, who has caught a tremendous stray on this episode. But <laughs> yeah, like, you're just very unfair. no. And I'm I'm, yeah, a, I'm a, I, by the way, yeah, you know, I am a fan. I mean, I I, I, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think like we all are. Just pointing out that yeah, he's a very good player. He, he's just not somebody that the casual fan, which we are not, you know, is going to, you know, say, ooh, you know, this this is a reason I I want to well, you know see and- base. Yeah, and and like what players rise above that? I mean, you know, Shohei Otani is the obvious example. If but you know, again, it's like, well, you know, you can if you if you're seeing him hit, he's probably not pitching that day, and yeah. you know, and yeah, I mean, Fernando Tatis maybe, but yeah, but it's it's the structure of the game that means even the mega superstars are not going to be front and center all the time. I mean, yeah, I mean, Sammy, you brought up the sort of the fan experience. Well, and I, 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 Go ahead, Mike. Well, I was going to say, I, I know we, an idea we were tossing around for the show, and I don't know if we're still doing it, was Sammy <laughs> was going to ask John and I about our first, like, I guess, experience at the ballpark. And, you know, I know we're kind of working backward toward this. Yeah, we'll but get there. I, I think the whole thing, though, like, like just in a general sense – like for me, like why I fell in love with baseball, it wasn't really because of any one specific player or, you know, like like something like that. It was more had to do with like the atmosphere of the game, like the atmosphere at the stadium, like the atmosphere behind the team and the story of the team. Like like and then in a you know, broader sense, like the story of baseball. And I that's what made me eat it up. And like what I don't know is like I don't know if that's something that still interests people or I don't know, you know, we've heard this before. Baseball doesn't know how to market that. Like that that's and it could be both. Like I, I like I said, I don't know. I mean, it's almost like they you know, I'm just thinking of the Field of Dreams game for all uh, the problems and, you know, I I'm kind of ambivalent about the whole concept, but it's almost like that, you know, worst person you know has has a great idea kind of thing. Where there was something really compelling about that, about the visuals of it, um, the idea of it, and I think there is that potential to, and, and I, you know, again, like Field of Dreams, the film sucks. Um, the idea of baseball is this kind of, um, I don't know, this sort of nostalgic, um, ideal pastoral Americana. Fuck that, but. There was something for all of my objections to the whole concept of it. It was visually pretty stunning. You know, it was a pretty cool thing to see. You're, so you're talking yeah. about the game. You, I was just saying you're talking about the the game. The itself, Field of Dreams not, game, not yeah, the yeah, movie. Yeah. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure that. Yes. Okay. No, the movie is a piece of flaming garbage that I just do not want to ever uh, have cross my path again. But that game was was pretty cool. Well, so, you know, I, I was listening to, um, you know, Ellen Adair and, and Eric, Eric, I'm going to mispronounce his last name. So I'm just going to say Eric, um, they're, they're wonderful <laughs> podcasts. Take me into the ball game. Um, and they were talking about, this wasn't their most recent episode, but they were talking about the movie, the babe. And, you know, when we had Ellen on the show, 
Ellen and I both said like that that's the worst baseball movie. Like it, there's just something awful about that movie. And and the two of them did what they do so well. Like they dissected how the history was awful and how stuff was off about it. It made no sense. And and it was all true. But the thing about that, and this is something that works at baseball's advantage, I, I think there was a time where Babe Ruth is just the greatest example of this. Nobody really cared about the reality of Babe Ruth. I think people yeah. love the myth, right? Like people love the idea that he was this larger than life figure who really, I mean, the case could be made like he was the most popular athlete, like relative to his time and relative to like the time that you know, everybody else is around that ever was. But it didn't matter, right? Like it didn't matter what he really did on the field. And John, have you have you seen that movie? I you know forever ago. Like yeah, I mean, same here. I haven't seen it in yeah. in a long, long time. But like like it's a funny thing about Babe Ruth or you know really any great player. Like it's kind of the idea of like, well, he made outs more than he got on base. Like that that's just the reality of baseball, right? Like it, it's it, it he was a great player, but he got on base you know forty seven point four percent of the time. You know, which means that he didn't get on base, you know, the the fifty two point six percent of the time. And I, I think that's that's the thing that kind of gets lost in the reality of of sport that is players in any sport fail so much. But so you know, we don't think of it that way. So are you are you I, I don't think you're this is the point you're making, but it makes me think, um does baseball need to find a way to create new myths for itself i mean is that is that even a possibility that's, that's kind of where i was going and I, I don't i don't know if i was going that they need to create new myths i i think where i was going is that it's difficult to do that now like it's we're, yes. we're in a much more cynical era and now some of that cynicism is good by the way i'm, I'm not like literally whitewashing and saying that oh why can't things be like they were in the 1920s, like, you know, well, fuck that. I mean, if, if you're, you know, as people have pointed out, like there's often that, you know, like prompt question on Twitter of if you could live in any historical period and people who aren't white point out will do like, unless you're a white male, like you can't answer that question, like before like 1970 or maybe even 1980, because it would be awful for you. Like it would be awful in like so many, you know, ways, like that's a very, you know, privileged question to, to even ask, let alone answer. So no, I'm not suggesting that we can ever go back to that, but I think that's the problem, right? Like, because I even grew up on the idea with baseball, like kind of romanticizing like that time and kind of romanticizing the idea of, Oh, baseball has such a rich and, and storied and wonderful history and now we've we've really moved away from that. And it, it's funny because in the political like dynamic that we currently have, what I find really funny, fascinating is that so many people now are getting mad about like history being torn down, right? But they don't sound really happy about it. Like they they just sound angry. Like they sound angry about the fact that like his they said they sound they sound as angry about the history being tor torn down as they are about like the people who are trying to tear it down or saying, Hey, we should, you know, re-examine this. And so I don't know where to go. I guess what I'm saying, like, I don't really know where we go from here, but we can't go back to that. Like that's, that's sort of gone. Like the idea of, you know, Mike Trout as, as this like larger than life figure just isn't going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe there's, there's a way to, um, 
tell tell a story that's that's different than a kind of backward looking nostalgia. I I don't know. I that that's so much a part of um most baseball fans' DNA. I, I should say American, you know, like white American male baseball fans' DNA. But maybe there's something in you know from a a non-American perspective that can because if you you know so many of the exciting players in the major leagues are you know obviously not american not right. white and i you know i feel like there's there's this opportunity to to tell a different story that can tap into something that's that's exciting and infectious that that goes beyond this kind of like oh we're not going to see Ronald Acuna or Fernando Tatis Jr. or Vladimir Guerrero. We're not going to see them on the field constantly. We're not going to see them, you know, hit a home run or an extra base hit every single game. Um, and yet still there's something that there's something about them or there's something about, you know, the, the energy they exude and the atmosphere of the game in which they play that draws us, you know, to the ballpark, to the TV screen, wherever. I don't know. I mean, that's very, this is more idealistic than I usually am because I just think we're headed into this hellscape of like monetizing everything and right. betting and, and NFTs and, you know, well, all it, it, bullshit, but you know, I, not to repeat this, like for the, you know, I don't know how many, every week we've been doing this, but you know, I keep talking <laughs> about like the fantasy concept of this, right? Like when I started playing, it was the individual, it was the one league. It wasn't really gambling. Now it's like for some people it is gambling and, you know, they're, they're in God knows how many leagues and they don't, they do, they don't even know what players they have on what teams. Real baseball is almost the same sort of thing, right? I think for a lot of people, it's this idea of, and it's true of other sports too, but this idea of you're watching highlights, you're not tuned into one specific game, you know, yeah. you've got, you're, you're you're watching like you're just watching highlights on MLB network or some people have like four screens or multiple screens going at that. That's the one old man thing about me. I've joked you, about, I, yeah, I can't, I can't watch baseball that, that way. <laughs> I, I have to, I, I flip around, but I, I can't, I have to watch one game at a time. I can't do that. But the point being I, is that, that I think that works really well for football or at least football fans seem to really red zone channel dig that. Like, but for baseball, I don't think it works nearly as well. I, you know, that makes me think, I mean, I'm, I'm way past thinking that anything I say or do can really uh, affect any one or anything. So maybe, I mean, you've, you've given me the idea that if, and when we get a season, I might try to challenge myself. I mean, this is something that I think you generally do, Mike. Um, but it's not something I generally do, which is to, to sort of, if I'm going to watch baseball, just watch one game like just commit to a game and don't you know don't flip around on mlb tv don't you know during the commercial go hop over to the you know the rays orioles because i've got ryan mountcastle playing i mean just fuck the fantasy angle just watch a game be immersed in that game and then you know, if there's a game later that I can watch, watch did that you, game. I mean, that's kind of what I did with the Giants, you know. I was last, about to ask that, year. yeah. Yeah, you so know, I, as yeah. a Mets fan, that was, was like great. 20, that was 2015 for me, like especially like, you know, like after they got Cespedes. But even before that, like when they had the fast start and they were way up and they were doing well, I was, I was all in. Like I was really invested and it brought me back. Like it brought me back to what it was like to be a fan. And 
I, again, this is where this is all cyclical. Like, I, I, fans know, like, fans know that their team, you know, unless they're, you know, the Yankees or unless they're like one, like maybe the Cardinals, there's going to be some good times, there's going to be some bad times, right? Like, that, that's just part of being a fan. I think the problem is, and this is what baseball isn't, doesn't really see, there's a difference between a team that can win 75 to 80 games and a team that can win 60 to 65. Like the team that can win seventy-five to eighty games, yeah, they, they they might not be competitive, but they give you that glimmer of hope, right? Like they give you that feeling, ooh, you know, if things had just turned differently, like if this rookie had worked out, or you know, if if like you know the fifth best player on the team had outperformed, maybe we'd compete for the wild card, or maybe we'd you know compete for a playoff spot. Whereas the fifty-five to sixty win team, it's like, ah, oh, why why the fuck should I watch this? Like this is just not compelling or interesting, and yeah. that that that's kind of where this problem well, lies in like, this team narrative I'm talking about, like a season's a story, right? Like, like for me, football's a game. Like you watch one game, you're like, Oh, cool. You know, they won, they lost. It's, you know, it, it's fun. I, I saw some great plays to me. It's not just the one game in, in a baseball season you're watching. It's, it's the 162. And even, yeah. even if you don't, you're not plugged into all 162, if you, you know, turn on game 70 and the last game you watched was, you know, game 55, you're still like, okay, like I'm right back in the story, like, and you're, you're into it. Yeah. I mean, a simple measure of that is, you know, how late in the season is your team playing relevant games, right? And the 75 to 80 win team, you know, unless they've, they've clawed back from a really horrible start to get there, right. you know, the 75 to 80 win team is probably playing meaningful games into I don't know, maybe August, August, early yeah. August. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas the 60 win team, you know, it, they'd never really get off the ground. I mean, the Orioles probably in any given year are already double digit games behind right. when the calendar turns but, to May. But I, um, yeah, but, but I think the concept too, is that if you know, the team is trying to be bad, like, like if you know that they're, they're saying, well, you know, we're not going to really try this year. And, you know, we're just going to put like worse yet, like if they're not promoting their, their young players, like, well, we don't want the clock to start. You know, we, we don't want that that bad thing to happen. And they're mostly putting retreads out there. And then you're like, OK, well, like like the Cubs this year might wind up being an example of that where it's like, yeah, I know they said Marcus Stroman, mm-hmm. who's cool and fun. And I love Marcus Stroman. But if, if their perception as a Cubs fan is like, well, you know, Patrick Wisdom, you know, Frank Schwindel, you know, these other players <laughs> like their, their ceiling is like 70 to 75 wins. And, you know, worse yet, like in three or four years, like I'm not going to, you know, these aren't the, these aren't the players to be rooting for when they're good again. Why should I buy in? I think that's the problem. Like, that's the problem. And this is what MLB, I think, doesn't really get like they're or they do get it because all they're trying to do is squeeze every last dollar out of the product. But as a fan, you're like, well, like if you're telling me to tune in in five years, like something I wonder, like the White Sox are, are an example of this, like the White Sox were kind of in that, that cycle for years and now they're, they're back and, and they're fun. And you know, they're, they, they, they seem to be on the precipice of at least like making the playoffs or being competitive for a while. But I wonder how many fans or opportunities to like create fans they lost. Like how many like fans of a certain age were kind of like, eh, you know what? I, I'm just not, really that invested now because it's been years and I don't, I don't have a feel for this team. Yeah. So it's so hard to quantify. Right. I mean, right. I just, I, at this point we're, we're kind of spitballing. Yeah, I know it's not really um, a good thing to, to guess at, but, but I, you know, if someone heard your, what you just said, they would say, ah, but yes, 
uh, we've expanded the playoffs. So doesn't that doesn't that give you what you want? Doesn't that help? Because now you're well, the threshold is down from your it, 75 to 80 win team being relevant in August to your, you know, 70 to 75 win team is now relevant. It, it does if teams try like it, that. That's really what the litmus test is here, which, which is if most teams are trying. Look, well, I, yeah, I, I, I don't I, I'm not saying that nobody should ever rebuild. Like I, I've had this argument. People are people. Like, oh, teams rebuild. I'm like, well, yeah, of course. Like and realistically, probably a given year, like three or four teams should be. Uh, rebuilding. But but what it leads to is is not is trying without spending. Right. It leads to the raise model. Right. Which yeah. is you do everything to optimize and you do a pretty good job of developing your minor leaguers and your prospects so that you do have like. A pretty good ball club, but you're not going to spend well, on a big free agent to get you over the top, you know? Yeah. Well, it's I the, mean, the it, Rays are, have done uh, probably as well as anyone could do in that model. And, you know, still they've been to two World Series and haven't won. Any, yeah. So. And I mean, one, one of them was in the pandemic years. So th- there's kind of, you know, a, a weird, I don't want to say asterisk, but, you know, it's kind of the weirdness of the pandemic year. And mm-hmm. yeah, outside of that and outside of 2008, they, they're kind of the A's, right? Like they're they're the Moneyball A's. Like they constantly yeah. lost in the losing the first round, and some of that again, it just comes back to what I've said. I used to say about the A's, which is like, well, when you're a smart team and you're not spending money and you're beating up on a bunch of mediocre and bad teams, yeah, you're gonna you're, you're gonna succeed because you're smart. When you get to the playoffs and there's just smart teams with money, well you're probably going to lose or you're going to have at least you're a much harder sledding because the teams that got to the playoffs, unless maybe they got lucky, they're also smart. Like that's just the way it works. I, I think interestingly by expanding the playoffs, you're, you're probably increasing the odds of there being, you know, teams that aren't so smart <laughs> and you know, the, a team like the Rays or a team that's decides not to spend sneaking through the first round or getting through a couple rounds like that. That's kind of, going to be one of the byproducts of this perhaps and yeah the 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 other twisted thing about it, it's not just the rays like the other twisted thing about teams like the rays is, is that paradoxically the more teams like em- embrace that model the more likely it is the rays will succeed because the more teams like yeah we're not really going to spend that much money that everybody's kind of doing the same thing where they're not right. investing and then you get to this point where it's like see this is successful it's like well yes it's successful because fewer teams are trying as hard as they should to, you know, to go all out. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I, it's, it's hard to predict all the, all the consequences. I mean, I, I, I agree with you 100% about the disturbing trends. Um, and, and I, you know, I, it really is hard to imagine um, a lot of the, the real lower tier teams. I mean, I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe the Orioles now under sort of new management with a lot of prospects, the pirates, I mean, the pirates were BP's number one, uh, number one in the organizational rankings, which, you know, I was surprised at that. I mean, I hadn't really followed their, their drafts like- and their prospects developments closely, but like, okay, mm-hmm. the pirates now have at least this. You know, they had this opportunity. It's almost like this, uh, you know, they better not fuck this up, right? So, I don't know. Yeah, no. Um, 
there's always going to be like cycles. Like I, I'm not questioning that. Like there, there aren't that many teams. Like even the Tigers, I think finally after years in the wilderness look like they have a chance The the division helps, but it looks like they have a chance to maybe like kind of start their next run. The, the, the challenge I see is that the, these cycles for teams that do rebuild get longer and longer. I, I think I heard, it was um, Enosaurus and Derek Van Riper on on their you know athletic podcast uh, Rates and Barrels. I think Eno said that the Astros owner kind of made the point that you know they don't want to do the rebuild again. Like they did it once, and they mm-hmm. feel like yeah, like that that was you know I didn't say this, but I think the feeling was that was gross. Like we don't want to be in a position where <laughs> like we suck for four or five years. Like we we want to just be in the winning cycle. And I, I I guess I guess that's that's the thing to me about a rebuild is that. I don't mind the rebuild so much. I, I think sometimes you just got to do it like, and you just get stuck there. And truthfully, as a Mets fan, there've been one or two times in their history where it's like, honestly, I wish they had done a targeted rebuild rather than just be, you know, 75 and you know 87 for three or four years. And then you're like, well, what are we doing here? Like, you're, you're just not like accomplishing anything and it's just frustrating. And yeah, you're kind of trying, but you're doing it so badly. What's the point? So yes, I, I acknowledge a need for a rebuild. It's when that becomes when that combined with the money becomes a thing where it's like, well, we can't we can't ever take the next step because we can't spend till we're absolutely sure. It's it's kind of like, well, there's nothing sure in life. I mean, you could try and fail. And that's something about baseball that's fun too. And yes, I say this as a Mets fan, and I remember 2007. I'm, you know, I I don't have the memory of a goldfish, but that agony as a fan can be fun too. And it's just the idea of like, well, sometimes it doesn't work. And like, sometimes that's just the way it is. And the agony is part of being a fan. Yeah. And I think the agony is often what binds you to other fans. I mean, it's more of a sense of community. Um, you know, nothing, nothing creates community like, um, mutual suffering i guess yeah yeah um, well it, it's my, always my joke about being a mets fan i make the same joke about being from new jersey which is you know some outsider makes a joke and you're like yeah fuck you like go to hell and you know someone who's in your you know group and makes the joke you're like yeah you don't know the half of it you know when you, when you start complaining about the mets or, or new jersey so yeah yeah so i i um to pivot to the 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 agenda or the the loose topic that was laid out. I was actually trying to find on baseball reference the first major league game I went to. And um I I think I found it. Yeah, let me um, let me let me find mine while we're talking because I, I know do you, are you do you hundred percent know what I, it was? I, I do because it was kind of a wild game and um yeah so I, I can find it. So, so one thing that I certainly did not remember, uh, although I have, you know, I don't know if this is like the suggestion because now that I'm looking at the box score, I'm like, oh yeah, that did happen. But um, the very first game I went to, uh, I saw um, Henry Aaron hit a home run. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. That is cool. Also, it, it, you know, they're, you're older than I am, which I, I sometimes, <laughs> not by much, but you are. And I sometimes like, forget that that is cool was was he with was he with atlanta he was, or he was, was he... with atlanta so i believe okay. this was sunday this was at wrigley field um sunday july 7 1974 and the only thing i remember the only vivid memory i have about this game so 
I remember I went with my dad and um, we took, we lived in a, we lived in Naperville, which is, you know, a suburb of, of Chicago. And um, I know we, we took maybe a couple different trains, like we took a train and then we took the L switched, got, you know, went to, to the stadium and he, so at the game, I, I think I really bothered him for like some kind of souvenir and he, um, he got me a Chicago Cubs pencil, um, you know, just like a number two pencil. It was white. I think it had the Cubs logo on it. And when we were, so there was kind of a crush after the game to get on the L and in that crush, I dropped the pencil like just outside the door and then the doors closed and all I remember, and obviously it was pretty traumatic because here, you know, almost 50 years later, it's still in my mind, you know, I just bawled and bawled. I was so distraught that I lost my uh, Chicago Cubs pencil. So Henry Aaron home run, you know, just in and out of my mind, um, losing a Chicago Cubs pencil. Um, that was probably, you know, cost a quarter, uh, mm. deeply traumatic event. Yeah. So I don't I, know what that says about my future fandom, but I, well, you know, it's, it's funny because and you reminded me of a, a story from my childhood that isn't a baseball story, but I, I broke my, I had a compound fracture in my arm when I was seven and the, well, the joke is I, I fell off a picnic table. What happened was it was the summer. My brother and I were fighting in the backyard and we we were jumping from like table to table. These were temporary, mind you. My parents, I think, got them because they were having like a little like cookout. And I landed like I basically fell off the table. Like I, I kind of was flipping in the air and all my weight landed on my arm. Um, the bone popped out a little bit. It was really like fucking gross um i yelled i yelled daddy my arm my dad i i could i it was those things you ever get hurt and you don't know how bad it is they see how other people's faces look yes yes my dad like like looked gray like he had to see just turn gray and he pretty much just on instinct like scooped me up like you know threw me in the car it was like a sunday and like drove god knows how fast to the hospital like blowing off like every like light um but the thing the reason i bring it up because of your story i didn't cry i was probably in shock um, but they had to cut my shirt, which is like apparently my favorite shirt it was like this yellow shirt that I barely remember. And I cried because I had to cut the shirt. <laughs> so it didn't bother me that I, you know, broke yeah. my arm and the bone was sticking out and all that stuff. It bothered me. They had to, you know, I, that my favorite shirt had to go. <laughs> yeah, it's weird how memory works like that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, it's it's also just, you know, the whole thing about being a kid. And, you know, you, since you have a kid, you know, too, like sometimes like the, the shit they get upset about, you just have to remember it's like, well, like the brain isn't logical, and especially when you're a child, it's, no. it's not logical. It just, you know, we we get mad at stuff we shouldn't get mad at. Um, well, yeah, yeah. But my my first game, by the way, was uh, May 26, 1979. It was Memorial Day weekend. Uh, it was uh, Mets Pirates at Chase Stadium, and it was uh, the Mets won 10-8. Uh, that was year the Pirates like won the World Series, but. Uh, for whatever reason, the Mets gave them grief that year. They won eight out of their 18 meetings, even though the Mets were, were in the throes of their, their badness. Um, but it, nothing really memorable happened in the game, but it's funny. Like I'm looking at the, the hall of famers who were in the game and there, there were, you know, including Joe Torre who was managing the Mets. There, there were a few, um, let's see, Willie Stargell. Yeah. I'm pulling up the box score. 
Yeah, Bert Blylevin started and did not do well, um, but he he was there. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I always liked Lee Lee Mazzilli. Yeah, that was that was when Lee Mazzilli was like pretty solid. But yeah, that that Mets team, like you look at that lineup, that that Mets team. Well, and Mike Scott was there before he, you know, either depending on who you believe, either figured something out or started scuffing the ball. So and and uh, Ed Whitson. Um, yes, that's right. Erstwhile I, giant Ed Whitson. Yeah. yeah, I would not have remembered that. Like I, yeah. So so oh. the weird the weird thing about that year w- was that so like a couple things like the the first. So th- this is a separate question, but what's your first like memory of baseball like in terms of an event? Like is there a moment or an event where you're like, oh yeah, like wow, like I I remember that. I mean, other than going going to the game, because yeah, well, how I mean, well, how old were you when you went to that game? That might be like part of it. not even six. Oh, that's probably why. See, I was like eight years old when I went to this game. Yeah, so, yeah. So for I mean, me, I, I did. You go ahead. Oh, for me, the first memory was like Reggie's three home runs um, in the World Series. Yeah, and it was that thing, like you know, the Yanks in the World Series, and you know, I was you know lived in the New York, lived in New Jersey or North New Jersey, so that was a thing but it was just one of those buzz things right it's one of those things that everybody was talking about the next day and even people at school were like you know did you see the game and I'm like no like i mean I'm, I'm a little kid you know i can't stay up and watch the game or whatever but everybody's talking about it it's just the biggest like damn deal in the world and like that was when baseball had that electricity that you know maybe it still has now but it doesn't have among people i know like i feel like football now has that electricity but yeah that, that's my first memory so that predates the game. Like, and that was before, like, that's when baseball to me, I realized was a big thing because of that event. Yeah. I don't, I mean, other than going, so I, I went to that game and then I went to a game in the Astrodome. Um, cause we moved to Houston a couple years mm-hmm. after that. And then it wasn't until we moved to California when I was, I think eight. Um, and then a lot of things just sort of locked into place. Like, um, I remember that's when I started to play for one. Um, I, I don't think I played until, until I was eight. And, um, that's around the time I started collecting baseball cards. Mm. And so that kind of got me into caring about s- stats and, and, and also, um, listening to the radio, like it became a ritual because after we moved, um, to California, I mean, it was, uh, I don't know, it, it sort of took me a while to, to make friends and, and I, you know, and even that is kind of irrelevant because on weeknights I wouldn't be hanging out with friends anyway, but I mean, it became a ritual for me to listen to the, the Giants radio broadcast and like all those things kind of planted the seed, whereas before it was just a thing in the background that I didn't really... I don't think I had much of a consciousness of it. Yeah, for for me it was so we we moved to New Jersey when I was five. We I was actually born there, but then like my dad who would bounce around a lot of jobs. Like we were in like Pennsylvania, not the field, like north of like Allentown area, like north of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. It was a different place, but I think if you know you're not local, that would Allentown would resonate. Um, so we were there for like three years and then moved back to Jersey when I was like five about to turn six. And 
I grew up in a court and there just were always games going on. Yeah. And there, were, there were always kids yeah. around. So like kids were like playing baseball or touch football. And later on, when I got older, people got hockey sticks, like street hockey. Um, but, but the point being is there was always like a game going on, but baseball was kind of the game that just, we were able to play. Like we, I remember it was kind of incongruous. Like we had, when we got old enough, you know, we got our parents to get us like wooden bats, but we played with tennis balls. Yeah, we did and, too. Yeah, and the thing, the thing I remember, which is funny, were like the, the jerky neighbors, and especially the. I remember thinking as a kid, like maybe as an adult, I understand this, but now I'm an adult, I don't understand this. Like the jerky neighbors who would get all pissy about you, like walking on their lawns to get your ball. <laughs> where yeah, it's, it's yeah, like, oh yeah. come on, dude, like give me a, you know, give me a break. Taking like, around in their shrubs. Well, it wasn't even that. Like the, the... it was I, that I could get, but it was just like the ball go on their lawn. You like the the you know, walk five feet on their lawn and that would lead to this like big, you know, speech from the neighbor. And you're like, come on, dude. Like I'm not standing on your lawn, like waiting for a fly ball. Like your, your lawn's actually foul territory. Like I'm just getting the ball. <laughs> and, and no one was, no one had enough power or, or juice to even like get close to their windows. So it's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I just don't see how this is like even relevant. But yeah, that, that's how I into baseball. And yeah. Same thing with cards. Like I remember going to the convenience store and like back then, you know, <laughs> what does sound like Abe Simpson here? You know, like taps cards were a quarter and I could get a pack. I, yeah, I, so. I'm worried that this whole episode is like. It's for old people. To or two old men. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's going to listen to this and be like, what the fuck? Like, what, what is, you know, I knew you guys were old, but I didn't know you were that old. But yeah. So my, my dad was, as you both know, and some listeners know, was an immigrant. And, you know, he, he's from Argentina. And so the question I always get, did he like soccer? And it's like, no, he, he did not like sports. He, he thought sports were a waste of time. And when I was a kid, I didn't really get that. I found that frustrating. And as an adult now, like knowing what I know about like the immigrant experience, I kind of get it. Uh, I think some people come to this country and they see the excess of the United States, particularly compared to where they came from. And there's sort of this what the hell reaction and I think that's where my dad was coming from. Um, like he he was um, he started working when he was like fourteen or fifteen, and he pretty much worked a full time job and went to school at night in high school, and then he did the same thing in college. So like his a lot of his life was work. So he sort of felt like well, like th this thing to me doesn't like resonate. So I don't remember what or why or, you know, how I finally like got him to do it. But, you know, he finally took me to this this Mets game. You know, I finally, I guess, got through to him or he, or he decided, well, before you can, can I just ask what what did your dad do? What was his profession? He was he was an electrical engineer. OK, yeah. But by the way, I, I say was like my this is a whole other show. I, I say was like my dad passed away sometimes, but he he's alive. We're, we've just been estranged for many, many years. But that that's a. We we could do that. We, we could do that podcast another yeah. time because yeah, that could we be a could whole do other... the troubled relationships with fathers. Yeah, for sure. yeah we, we could we could do that. But yeah, anywho, so he he finally took me to this game, and like I, the thing is, I don't really remember the game that much. Like I remember, it was a lot of scoring, so I remember that being exciting. You know, the score going up on the board, and you know, people being like really you know, excited by this 10 to eight game and a couple of Mets homered. And I think Steve Henderson was my favorite player for a little while. Cause I saw him Homer at this game. Mm -hmm. And as an aside, I was in college and I was at the university of Buffalo and it was a summer and I had nothing better to do. So I was like still writing stories for the paper. I get press passes for the triple a like Buffalo Bisons 
Um, he was a coach there. I got to talk to him or tried to talk to him. It was like just one of the most disappointing experiences because he just didn't really seem to be into it, which again, in retrospect, I don't blame him because he's like, ah, you're a college kid and chances are none of this is going to really show up anywhere of significance and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, he, I mean, he wasn't like a jerk. It was just one of those things where he just wasn't into it. And in retrospect, I, I get it. So fine. But I just really experienced, like, I just remember, you know, my dad, like getting me food and like just being at the ballpark and how, like how green it was and how big it was too. Right. Like, but I think when you see it on TV, it doesn't look as big. And when you're there, like the, the stadium just feels like larger than life. And have you been to Shea Stadium or, you know, past tense? I ne- no, I've never, I never. So, Shea Stadium was a whole but it was like, it definitely had a vibe to it too. And it, it just is very similar to what you're saying about being a Mets fan. Like it was our hole. <laughs> it just was like a very crappy place, but there was also something. Well, that's how I felt about Candlestick. So yeah, yeah I get it. I get yeah. It. And it, I, I think the vet was like that too. Like it just, it just had this vibe of like, yeah, like th- this is that old school. I know it was built in the sixties, but this has that old school, like seventies feel where everything's kind of off, but, and yeah, it's kind of shitty. But I, I just wound up loving it. And the thing, too, I remember about the game is my dad, like, like this was a long game. Like, this this was a three-and-a-half-hour game, which, you know, by today's standards isn't that long. But I think by the standards of, you know, 1979 is a long time. And I'm sure my dad, a part of him, is thinking, what the hell? Like, this is going to be a two-and-two-and-a-half-hour thing. And I could see him getting antsy and wanted to leave. And I'm like, no, please. Like, I, I, I don't want to leave. Like, I want to watch the whole game. And we did leave. And he bribed me with Burger King, which which was for him was a big thing also because he didn't like fast food. Um, so you know he got me probably like a Whopper Junior and fries or and whatever, and I was like happy and I fell asleep on the way home. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So that that's my memory of of the first baseball game. I don't think it was really the game so much anything in the game that happened, but the experience made me a fan. Like the experience just made me feel. Like I, I could almost feel in that moment like I belong. It's like wow, like this is, this is my thing. The the other thing I'll say is I, I I've said this too. So sorry for repeating myself, but I often joke about Mets fans like the underdog. But the reality is I'm a Mets fan because my dad emigrated to Queens initially, so he knew Queens. Like had he emigrated to the Bronx, I'd I'd be a Yankees fan. You know that that's that's why it went down that way. Well, it's good fortune for you because. I mean, it's not, it's terrible fortune for you because you picked the demonstrably worse team, but you're, you're also probably a better person for not. Pro- probably. I mean, there, there, there's some good Yankees fans. There's some good Yankees fans. You know, it's like Stacey Goodsulis is the one Hi, I, you know, I, I love Stacey. You know, she, she's great. And yeah, you know, I've, I've been on her podcast a, a couple of times. We should actually have her on here. She, she'd be an awesome guest. And if we ever, ever want to do like a pop culture, you know, eighties podcast, she'd, she'd be high on the list, but like, she's great. But yes, there is a class of Yankee fan that, and there's a lot of them that, who are just joyless, like people where like, if they don't win a world series, they're mad every year. And Samuel, you probably know Cowboys fans, even though they haven't won in God knows how long, like there's probably Cowboys fans like that too. I imagine 27 where, years. Right. But there, there's Cowboys fans like that. I imagine who if oh, they don't win the yeah. Super Bowl are like angry and they're probably older at this point where it's like, oh, I remember the day. And you get to this point where it's like, dude, like what, what what's the point at, at this point? Like you're not even enjoying yourself. Like like I mentioned 2015 before, I, I, I didn't like the way that year ended, but that was a fun year. Like I, I love that year. That was great. Like it, it, most of that year, most of what I remember is the happiness of that year. I don't remember 
2006 even that, another bad ending you know losing to the cardinals and it still pisses me off like the, the ending that was a great year like i again i on the whole i love that year well, i mean circling back i mean again that's like i think in recounting what makes us fans and made us fans initially it's interesting to overlay that on the question of whether that's possible now like you know going to the park is it's still possible to have that that experience where you know as both of us have described it wasn't the game itself right especially since you know when we were very young it wasn't the game itself that drew our interest it wasn't the game itself that was magical or special it was it was everything else it was you know it was the architecture of the ballpark it was the greenness of the field it was maybe the the junk food we got it was the roar of the crowd it was the right you know it was the just the the whatever quality of experience you get that is completely outside of or at least well, you know adjacent to the game but not the game itself I, I i feel that baseball like it has become kind of like an experience with a capital e and <laughs> like like with kids right. like they're they're trying mm. with kids but they're almost trying too hard like they're trying for that amusement park, like entertainment, you know, like fun time feel. And I think the vibe I've gotten from my kids when they were younger and I took them to games was like, well, like this is great, but like, why wouldn't I just go to an amusement park? Like why, why would I bother with this where there's a baseball game overlaid with it that I'm not really that interested in? Like, why wouldn't I just, why can't you just take me to an amusement park? Like they didn't say that directly. Right. And then the other feeling I've gotten from my kids is like, I get the same experience in the minor league game where I think they enjoy it more because it's more intimate. It's smaller. Like you're sitting closer, you know, you're, you're kind of right on top of the action. You could see the players and like to them, they like, we, I went with, um, with L to a, a game in Trenton, uh, when the AAA, you know, when the blue Jays, you know, affiliate was here, the AAA affiliate. And to them, like, you know, seeing AAA players up close, like they don't know the difference between them and major leaguers. Mm -hmm. So like, or L didn't, so it was fine. And I think seeing Rowdy tell is that close, like we were in the second row was like quite entertaining. Like, I was like, Holy <laughs> crap. Like that, that is a, you know, big dude. So yeah, like to, to your point, like I, I think that something, something's lost and it's really intangible. And it's sort of hard to explain, but it, it does go back to commoditization too. Like I remember when it, like at Shea, it was pretty easy to sneak down, especially at the end of the game, to the lower levels and watch a game. Oh, yeah, and, for sure. And now I've noticed, like, everywhere you go, like, there's security. And if you don't have a ticket, you can't go down there. And a couple of years ago, I went with an older friend. And he's, if you're listening, Phil, I'm sorry. He, he's a little curmudgeonly and, you know, kind of, uh, like, you know, he's a good guy. But he's he just a little curmudgeonly. He's older. Like, there's he's way older. There's no way, other way to put it. And he was complaining because we're at this Phillies game. And at the end, you know, he, he wanted to go down. And the security guard firmly but politely was like, well, you know, you know, take you can't come down. Or, and he, you know, after we walked away, he was annoyed. And I'm like, well, I get it. Like, you know, people pay a lot of money for these tickets. But as I said that to him, I also was like, well, I get it. But I also feel like, well, for a young fan, go, going down there would be exciting, right? Like going down there and being that close to the action, even, even for two or three innings would be kind of cool. And now like you can't do it because, you know, the, the attitude, not even saying it's wrong, but the attitude of, you know, people who run the game is like, nope, you didn't pay for this. Yeah, no, but it's still, it's true that like, 
there is something still appealing like the the you know as you as you said the feeling you get that that we used to get you know that that the informality the kind of looseness that you would get maybe at some major league ballparks particularly if it wasn't that crowded or if it was a inconsequential game and people left early i mean you could still get that at at uh you know, when I go watch uh, college baseball or if I right. go to Spokane for a minor league game. And the, the beautiful thing about that is it's so it's easy. It's low stakes. It's not that expensive. You roll up, um, you park within five, five minute walk of the stadium at most. Mm-hmm. You, the food's not that expensive. Right. You You get your seats, but no one's you know, on your ass. If you sit somewhere else, you can move around unless you can move only, around unless it's a rare game. It's packed, right? If it's a dull game and you're with your kid, who's not enjoying it, you leave after four or five innings. Exactly. Big deal. You know, but by the way, do you, do you know who pitched? Um, you who got a win on the same day that I saw my first baseball game and for, for the Cubs. I don't, I won't De- uh, Dennis lamp. Oh boy! Wow, must be destiny. Podcast favorite. I should have got. Oh, I'm mad at myself. Podcast callback. Yeah. Go. <laughs> yes. Well, that. Yeah, that's on a different a different brand where the yeah. uh, Dennis Lamp. I'm podcast looking at that. Is so, so when did when did you actually enter the Giants then? Because you you moved around. Like when when did you yeah. become a fan? Yeah, I think the first full season would have been '78. Because we okay. moved like in summer of '77, um, so probably I was um, pretty invested oh, the by '78. The old cursive logo with like the orange baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, they were. I, I'm looking at this. They they were pretty. They were pretty good in in '78. I you know yeah. Years ago, I I wrote a piece that for BP that never got published because as I first of all it was taking way too long to write, but then second of all, I'm like, well, this this is just something that is going to get. I should send it to the two of you to to read it. You can have a chuckle. Uh, I I don't have 30 teams fans yelling at me. It was essentially a misery index of uh. you know who are the most and least miserable fans and. And the point I made is that, well, you know, if you were a Giants fan in, in say, 2008, you could be really high on the misery index, right? Like, you you, you could sure. make the point of, like, wow, like, this team, I, I think I made a joke once on Twitter about Pedro Feliz, like, getting a ring with the Phillies and, you know, a bitter Giants fan watching that being like, well, what the hell? Like, wh- when's it going to be our turn? <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, that's, you know, a good chunk of my adult life was you know, me thinking, okay, I'm rooting for this team and I'll probably go to my grave without ever seeing them win a world champ. I mean, I was resigned to it. So the right. fact that they reeled off three in five years is still totally incomprehensible. Yeah. To me. yeah and, the, and the thing about that too, is that, you know, I, I know Cubs fans had their futility and Cleveland fans have their, their futility and, and that, you know, especially for Cubs fans, I get it. It, it was awful. And, you know, you, you deserve the happiness that, that you got, but like a team like the Giants, it's like it's almost overlooked. Like 1954, they weren't even in like San Francisco. No. Yeah, they they made the World Series, you know, three times before they you know finally won in in 2010. But, but all all you know, really depressing or heartbreaking circumstances, right? I mean, there was the '62 uh, with uh-huh. the the Bobby Richardson. Yep. Um, there was '89 uh, with the earthquake. The, the earthquake. Was, yeah. And O2 with with uh, the Angels and, you know, basically having it in the bag in game six. And 
Scott Spezio. And that was uh, a hell of a, that was a hell. I mean, as, as a neutral fan, like that was a hell of a, a series. Like I, that was a great like world series. Yeah. Good. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Well, I, I say <laughs> okay, that I'm over I say it. again as a Mets fan, like 2015 <laughs> was just like a, a gut punch where it's like, man, like we, it, it's one thing to lose, but like to, to lose in five, like that, that just, to the Royals, just, to the Royals too, right? To a team that, on paper at least, was I think it was a terrible matchup for the Mets in terms of the you know basically beating the Mets is stuff that I knew they were bad at, but it still it didn't make it any better. But yeah, I, I, that's I guess a separate question is would you rather you know go have your team go to the mat? I like probably for you like twenty speaking of the Royals like twenty fourteen had that gone the other way and had it been close. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's different because you already had two World Series in the bag. Like, what have you, what have you, have you kind of felt well? It was a great series. You know, we gave it our all. Like, we, we had to pitch Bumgarner, you know, out of the bullpen and, you know, he got tired or, you know, he gave up a, you know, he gave up a run or, or, or two runs and in, in five innings and, yeah, whatever. That's baseball. Or you've been pissed off and you're like, ah, crap. So I, I mean, I, honestly, if they'd have lost it to the Royals, it, it wouldn't, make that much of a difference i forgot that tim, i forgot that tim hudson started that game i always remember jeremy Jer, i always <laughs> remember jeremy no i felt oh i felt oh yeah right yeah i, I remember him for some reason because that's i remember bob garner replacing but i forgot that hudson got the yeah the start yeah yeah, yeah i mean it was it was a great like that whole narrative was was great and a lot of fun but i mean mm-hmm. you know i i i, I think that the 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 moment when i was at my sort of peak as oh my god this is amazing was probably game one of the 2012 series with uh-huh. panda hitting the three home runs i mean that was when that was like this is this is an embarrassment of this is too much like even that one game i'm like we won it two years ago wow. and we're destroying justin verlander and the tigers yeah well, that's the thing too the tigers were were maybe not clearly favored but the tigers were favored like they, they really were the team that people looked at like well yeah, the Giants are good, and you know, no disrespect, they won ninety four games, but like this Tigers team is going to beat them, and you know, it was it was a romp, like it just wasn't even a close series. And well, the thing about that too, like to to go back to what we we're talking about, this is the other fun part of it, right? Like the, those runs are fun. Like it's great to win once, but when you have a team that goes on a run for like three, four, or five years, I know for the Giants it was kind of irregular because they had a lose yeah. in 2013. And well, and they were never dominant in any of the years. Yeah, 2012 won, is the so. closest to to that. I mean, you know, like I said, 94 wins is a nothing, but you're right. They weren't like a but they almost got bounced out of the playoffs, you know. Right. I think right. in both series, but right, right. But but the the thing is is that those those runs are like I, I remember living here and I actually lived in Philadelphia when the Phillies went on their run and I think people are surprised from a Mets fan it's like oh you you enjoy that I'm like yeah I, I definitely enjoyed it like it was it would have hurt more if the Mets were good the entire time like like the the Atlanta in the 90s was more painful to me because the the Mets were close a couple of those years. And Atlanta was just always there, and you're like, ah, oh, fuck Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz. Like I respect them, but the, you know, this this sucks. Like it just sucks that we're in this division and we're always going to lose to them. Um, whereas you, the the Phillies for the the most of their run, or at least the second half, of it it's like, yeah, the Mets are just bad now, so whatever. I mean, the last thing I'll say about the Giants, and you should probably think about 
wrapping it up soon before like if anyone they maybe your friend maybe your friend phil actually i have a really good friend phil too um i'm sure he doesn't listen to this uh he's an ace fan um but the point i was going to make about the giants is i'm not sure that let me put it this way i think the most fun i had out of any Giants season was actually last season uh-huh. um, and i think a lot of it was because well, they won 100 and yeah. how many? Well, games? they won 107 games, but I was also kind of playing with house money in that mm. I was not going to be heartbroken if they, um, you know, if and when they got bounced out. I mean, yeah, that series was painful. I mean, I think the Dodgers, you know, the, the basically it was one amazing Logan Webb game and then a one nothing, you know, win that was pretty fluky. And then yeah. a game where Webb pitched great, but the Dodgers were just too good. Um, but I, you know, there was no, there was really no downside to it. And I think Mm -hmm. also after working at BP, writing for BP for a few years, I mean, I think I just had a better sense of, you know, what was going on, just not just statistically, but just strategically and in the context of baseball Mm -hmm. at large. And it was just, I don't know, it was a really satisfying fan experience. And when, you know, at the end I was not, I was disappointed, but I was, I was not all heartbroken. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, like it's it's eighty six, but like trying to think of as an adult, like what the most fun year was. That's that's tougher. Like it's it's tougher to come up with as a Mets fan what the most fun year was. And and part of that was like oh six, like that's the year Lucy was born, and I and like it happened toward the end of the year. But like we were buying a house. Um, we went to Italy that that summer. That was our Italy trip. I wasn't, I was plugged like during the playoffs. I kind of like started tuning back in. I, I, I'll be honest. I wasn't that plugged into that season. Like I knew the Mets were having a great year, but it was just one of those things. Was like, you yeah, you I, had I, other I, things going I've on. I've got way too much other stuff <laughs> going on in my life to like, really like, like watch every game and, you know, tell my, my pregnant wife, Hey, yeah, you like th- for three hours a night for like, you know, six months, like I'm just not going to, not going to be here. So yeah. Um, I did prob- the funny thing is it probably would have been like 2015 or 2016. It was probably one of those for 2016 was really funny. It was the second part of that year. That was fun because, you know, that's year the giants beat them in, in the wild card game. Yeah. Connor you know, Gillespie, was, baby. Yeah. I, I tweeted like, there's no way Gillespie can beat the Mets or something like that. Like five seconds where it happened. People are like, Holy shit. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm a dumbass. Uh, but I, I think I said something about, you know, even accounting for even your bullshit, like Connor Gillespie, you know, doing anything here <laughs> ridiculous. And then, yeah, people were laughing their asses off me. It just might be so. But the the comeback the Mets made that year was fun because they, I think they, it was also a series against the Giants. They didn't do well. They they were floundering. And they were, I think, right under 500. I'm trying to find it now. Yeah, here it is. They were 60 and 62. Uh, it was a four game set with the giants. They, they lost the first two. And I, I remember look, the thing I remember is I looked at the schedule. I'm like, well, I don't even think this Mets team is that great, but the schedule was like just so much in their favor. Mm. And I figured out, I'm like, all they've got to do is, is win, you know, like 28 games and they're in the playoffs. People are like, there's no way to win 20 games. I'm like, well, you haven't looked at the schedule. Like it was just an analysis thing. I'm like the, the schedule just is so like soft that you know unless like they you know are mediocre and go 500 like they're gonna make the playoffs and and they did like i was off by a win but that's that's what happened it, it was just fun to watch that like kind of like play out 
Um, but yeah, 2015 with Cespedes, I think, as an adult was the most fun year I had. Like, I, I can't recall, like, one player just being so, like, dynamic and excellent and just really, you know, we were talking before about, like, you know, wanting to see a player. Like, I just wanted to see Ioannis Cespedes play. Mm-hmm. And he was on my team. And, like, on one level, I knew he wasn't that good. Like, I knew it wasn't sustainable. But in the moment, I didn't care. Yeah. Like, all you had to do was be good for, like, you know, or great for three months. You'd have to be great for my whole life. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this earlier. To, I was thinking this earlier today. It's like, I, it, this goes back to what I as a fan. Like, some fans nowadays are conditioned to be mad at you on assessments. He took the Mets money. I'm like, what do I care? Like, I... I why would that matter to me? Like, it's not my money. And and truthfully, for the joy I got for Yannis Cespedes, the Wilpons could have paid him twice as much. I, it, I, I can't measure that joy. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. Well, on it, I, you know, we've, I don't, I don't think Yannis is, you know, distant enough in the past to be quite at remembering a guy level. No, but, no, he's not. But it is, it is always good to, reflect on the the short bright burning star that was you know yeah, I, mean, I mean he's probably done like you know that's the thing about him like he's not coming back and oh, it, it is it sadly. is kind of it is kind of amazing to consider you know this is you know there's always that tweet that goes around about you know the announcer saying you know this this old guy is, is still somehow hanging on and you're like oh great he's 35 like you know f you like you know Yohannes Cespedes was done well, his last game was at age 34, but he was essentially done at age 32. Like, I mean, that that's just, it's mind-boggling, but it, it happens. I mean, if you throw out, you know, 2020 when he only had 34 plate appearances, but, you you know, 2018, his last, uh, you know, was, was, significant. Oh he, was, oh, he was good. Yeah, he had a, he had a, he had a 126 OPS plus. Like, only... Um, yeah, no, he he actually never had never had an OPS plus below 103 and several yeah. like from the run of like 2015 to 2018. He was he was quite good. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he was a, I mean, the thing about him is he, he was a four wooden player for, you know, the A's in his rookie year. And I think people were like, oh, my gosh, like there's, you know, so much potential here. And he was always pretty good. It just never materialized into. I think the more that people were hoping for. Yeah. All right. Trip down memory lane. It was, it was special. This was, yeah, this was, this was a happier podcast than usual, (laughs) which I I don't know if that was the goal, Samuel, then I I say, well done. Oh, I didn't really do anything in this case. Sometimes you just got to, get out of people's way and let them do good things and i think it worked out pretty well yeah, let, yeah, the, let the old men reminisce yeah I'm, I'm just saying like yeah i think when this this nugget of idea came up like i i think that it, it was a good idea because i think we even mentioned this last week we i, I couldn't do another like downer of a podcast like i, I just i even think i said on the last podcast like with mikey like i, I can't you know spend 20 minutes talking about covid which of course i did so i'm glad we didn't do that this week well, it's interesting too because, like, I was gonna, as the conversation kind of carried on, it was, I was just kind of thinking because, like, you know, again, sometimes you just gotta let the content roll when it's happening, and the difference between like y'all's experiences at first games and like my experience at first games and like those early formative experiences are very different because y'all remember a lot more than I do. Like, I can't even tell you when my first game was. Like, I know some small details about it 
I know it was the Angels. I know it was the Angels and Rangers at the old at what is now Choctaw Stadium, which please gag me with a spoon. Um, I but and I know that Bovon was supposed to play, but he was hurt. I know that Darren Oliver was a Ranger for. I think this would have been his first stint before he came back later. Uh, I can't remember if he had two or three. But as far as, like, I can't tell you when it was, what day of week was, who won. Like, the things that y'all remember, I just do not. Well, I, I, I remember very little. I was getting most of it from baseball reference. Sure, yeah, but, like, you, so. you at least have that ability to have. I don't, I can't. I don't have any idea. Like, well, I do. Yeah. I do wonder. I like, really I, I, I remember my game because, like I said, it was like such a high-scoring affair, and you know, I managed to find it. And I kind of remember it was Memorial Day weekend. Like the other two games in that series were well, actually a tie, which I would have remembered because they they suspended the game, but they were low-scoring games. So I think when if, if all four games have been low-scoring games, I probably would have scratched my head and been like, "Well, it was one of those." I don't remember which. I think it just stood out because it was a ten-eight game. Yeah, because there's not that many of those even with the more modern offense. But, like, the things that I remember about baseball, both even as a kid and really more now as I've gotten more involved in the game as, as an adult, is just, like, I remember going to college games growing up because we had TCU 30 minutes from the house. And, yeah, it was way cheaper. It was way more fun. This is right before TCU got uh, to their College World Series status. Like I got to see Steven Strasburg pitch in college, and he struck out like twelve dudes in a rainstorm when it was forty degrees. It was, it was ridiculous. Like it was one of the best things I've ever seen. But, like going to those small parks, and now I think about going to Frisco all the time and getting to you know just enjoy the bright sunshine and batting practice, or leaving the old Rangers Stadium late at night after covering games, and like everyone has gone. The the, the stadium lights are on, and I'm just walking through the old stadium by myself. It's 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 just a very serene picture it's it's going to uta games to call them in, in a very small stadium in a very intimate environment like i don't remember so much about the actual like games i'm not sure i could even tell you like significant events that happened on the field at any of these things but i just remember like the 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 vibes for lack of a better term which makes me feel both young and old at the same time i'm not sure exactly <laughs> how this is possible but I, I think this speaks to kind of like to tie all our topics together in a certain way like it speaks to how the game has changed, at least for my generation. I think there's less of an emphasis on what's going on in the field and more about what's happening around you. Like I can tell you a million stories about people I've been to games with, conversations I've had at games, just the general like everything around it. But like, do you, as far as remembering like what actually happened on the field, like of significance, I've got a couple, but I can't tell you that much. Like I can't give you that much. That doesn't mean it's not great, though. That doesn't mean I don't enjoy all those memories and I don't associate them with baseball because I do. But I think it's an interesting dichotomy of like the way that we all process it. And, and there is a generational gap just because of our existence, but how we process baseball differently now and then. And yeah. I think baseball isn't leaning in enough well, to like understanding that. Like, I think they, yeah. I think they've missed, I'm, they're missing the boat for lack of a better Well, term. I mean, something I've, I've talked about before on, on the podcast, on the old podcast and John, I know you pushed back us a little bit, but I do remember like being able to watch like a non-Mets or Yankees game was like a thing. And that made me more interested like, like I can, I remember like the old game of the week and there was a, ga a day game on Saturday and I think ABC had like a Monday night game, but mm -hmm. that was really it. Like it, that, that was like in the eighties, that was pretty much the only way you could watch a game unless you had cable, which I didn't. 
and even then it was like i think like the braves and the cubs yeah, was, and you know it wasn't like everybody right. so it, we it only was, had tbs so it was, yeah it was the same it was the same with us in our market like we didn't have wgn like i know i think there was one person i knew who knew somebody up in north jersey who had wgn and it was like ooh, you know you get the cubs too like I think the cubs are good back then but just but it was just the idea that you could see you know more more teams yeah and, and so and then like as a national league fan, like seeing an American league game before interleague play, like that was kind of also a thing where it's like, Oh wow. I, I get to see like the other league and I get to see the DH and I, I you know, all, like all this stuff about the DH and, you know, keeping it and, and all that. I think when the, the leagues were separate and you didn't really get to see a lot of one league or the other, I could see, I could see why the novelty had appeal. Like now that the game is like very homogenous and you, you can, watch any game you want all the time on any streaming platform unless you're blacked out of course so i should say yeah. most most of the games like like that, I mean, that that's kind of lost it is lost but it's a trade-off for me like i i'm not going to be too nostalgic when i actually think it's you know having mlb tv i think it's really cool in a lot of ways and you know yes i was kind of a uh, was not a fan of interleague play when it first happened because me, me neither you know and i thought well it's it's diluting the sort of importance of not not just the World Series, but like I, I used to enjoy the All Star Game even for because it was players playing against each other that you didn't see um, on the same field at the same time, and you know you adjust, you adapt. Hell, I'm actually in favor of the Universal DH, which I actually got into a kind of funny Twitter, um, you know argument with my uh a f my brother and and a, a mutual friend about um you know they they were both still very sad you know because we're all giants fans very sad that the you know the the dh was going to come to the national league and i was like yeah it's fine like pitcher shouldn't hit this is dumb and of course almost in unison they're both like but madison bumcar i'm like yeah what's his career ops like for something, you know. Yeah. Well, it, it it's sort of the idea of like I get it. Like, you know, watching like Jake Garrett, it was another good hitting pitcher. Like watching a pitcher, you know, hit a home run or do something great once in a while is fun. But the payoff isn't worth worth it. It's like no. almost like you know, it's almost like sitting and playing the slot machine for an hour and you know, most times you're just gonna lose your money and it's like eh, like that just was like mindless activity for an hour. That's usually what watching a, a pitcher hit is like. It's just a mindless activity. So Trevor Williams, I don't know if you guys saw his his tweet. I um, did not. So he he put together or had someone put together basically like a compilation of his hitting quote unquote highlights. And it was over this like serious music and it was like R.I.P. Trevor. And it was just a bunch of him like, you know, grounding out weekly, sacrifice bunt. Swinging strikeout, called strikeout, and it was it was it was really clever. Like it was making the point um, that we're, you know when it comes down to it, we are not missing a goddamn right. thing. Right. So. Well, and, and the, there's the point I've always made too, which is the the strategy thing was kind of interesting when teams carried 15 hitters on the roster. Right. You know, and speaking of games, like you know, you go back and look at boxers from the 70s and 80s. Sometimes you'd see like a, a manager bringing a pinch hitter. And then, you know, the other manager would bring in the lefty and then 
the manager bring another pinch hitter and as a fan you're kind of like, ooh that's that's interesting like it, that's that's kind of cool or you know you, you'd see the manager you know pinch hit for the eight hitter and the you know and the pitcher now so the I, ma- now the manager really can't do that or maybe you can do it in the ninth inning like yeah. if you, if you've got Scherzer or somebody going go seven or eight innings but you like th- that article Russell had where you know he pointed out like there's no strategy it's just it's pressing three buttons and right. it's the same buttons every time yeah so I was I was uh, not um, fair to Madison Bumgarner 524 career OPS so that's pretty good and you know two seasons of a 700 plus I mean 2014 and 2015 like combined for nine homers and 24 RBI I mean that's pretty damn impressive but uh, still, I, I was looking this up recently. I think when I saw the news, like I was, I think I was looking for the, um, like best hitter pitching season in the last 20 years. And it was somebody, it wasn't Bumgarner. It was somebody somewhat surprising. It wasn't Carlos Zambrano and he was, he was up there, but it wasn't, he was fun to watch hit too. Like I, he was that pit. He was that, he wasn't like a high average hitter, but when he connected once in a while, he, he'd hit the ball far. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think Zimbardo is a guy too. You look at his war for his career. You're like, I didn't realize that high. And it's like, I, I think he has like eight to 10. I think, I think eight to 10 of that is as a hitter, which, wow. which for, for a pitcher is good. Like you're kind of, well, that's, that's, that's solid. Insane, and you can contribute eight to 10 wins or I only look that up. Cause I don't want to, you know, I don't want to steer you wrong and ha- have you tell your friends you're, that you're and, just telling tall tales about Carlos yeah. Zimbardo. Yeah. Let me see here. Um, I was a little, little, I overestimated. He was a five and a half, five point six. It's still, yeah, it's still really solid. Um, what do you have? He had 24, he had 24 home runs as a 24 home runs. That's yeah. impressive. That's impressive. Um, yeah, that is. Yeah. Bumgarner was only 19, only 19. He was 19. I think Mike, Mike Hampton, I know, was the other guy who could hit. And I remember it was the Mets fan too, because he was here. He could hit pretty well. going to do it for this week's episode of it's a baseball podcast again we appreciate you listening to this episode and any of the previous episodes that you've tuned in for again we do greatly 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 appreciate it if you like what you heard today and you want to follow the host on social media mike is at mike gianella john is at john heglin and i am at the samuel hale that's all on the twitter machine if you need more information about the show it's a baseball podcast.com you can find out where all we're distributed that sort of thing we're on apple spotify anywhere you can get podcast these days and if we're not there yet we're probably gonna get there just wait for spotify and apple to buy up everything else and we'll probably be there eventually if you have questions concerns comments you'd like to sponsor the show you'd like to advertise you'd like to be a guest if you have something you're pitching it's a baseball podcast at gmail.com send all your inquiries there and one of us will get back with you very shortly but until next week when we bring you episode six of it's baseball podcast again thank you so much for listening and we'll be in your ears real soon Mm -hmm.